0: For our lesson of the day, we are back in the epistle of James, and we will focus especially today on verses 26 and 27, but I'm going to begin reading in verse 18 of chapter 1. So again, hear God's word. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves." For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, But deceives his own heart. This one's religion is useless. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, you are so good and so gracious, so full of love and abounding grace to us, to we who are sinners, so Father, show Your love and Your mercy and Your grace to us today. Father, we want to live under the authority of Your Word. Father, Your inspired and inerrant Word, Your perfect law of liberty, the implanted Word. Father, may that implanted Word grow and bear fruit in our lives. Father, this is a cry to You. We look to You as the Father who gives us every good and perfect gift, especially the gift of Your Son and the gift of Your Spirit. And so, Father, be with us now. Speak to us now. Fill us with Your wisdom. These things we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. James tells us to be quick to listen in verse 19. We must listen to God's Word. Listen, but don't just listen. You must also do. As James goes on to say, God's word requires a response. Hearing requires doing. Hearing without obedience is just hypocrisy. To know without doing is demonic. The demons know without doing. It's nothing more than what the demons have. No, we must know and do, combining our knowledge with action. James goes on to compare God's Word to a mirror in verse 23 and following. The purpose of a mirror, of course, is to show you, you! The mirror lets you see what you look like. and so you can see what you look like so you can do something to improve your appearance. And so it is with Scripture. The law is held up to us as a kind of mirror so we can see ourselves as God sees us, so we can see all of our flaws and shortcomings and sins so that we can repent of them, so we can begin to grow in obedience to God's Word. And indeed, James indicates to us that God's Word is not just dead ink on a page. It is living and active, full of power. It's like a seed, he says in verse 21, a seed planted in us. And when this seed is implanted in us, if we cultivate that seed instead of choking it out, it will grow to bear great fruit, resulting in transformed lives and ultimately in our salvation. And James tells us that this is the way of blessing in verse 25. The doer of the word will be blessed in his doing. If you want God's blessing, you must do the work his word requires. James makes that clear. This is the way of blessing. There's no other way to get God's blessing outside the way of obedience. James has told us all of this. So that we will not be deceived. Self-deception in these matters is very easy, even common. He wants us to understand what real religion is. That's another way of getting at this. Three times in verses 26 and 27. So three times in two verses, he uses that term, religion or religious. In fact, you could say, really, this is another way of summarizing the whole letter. We've already seen in chapter 1 several ways of summarizing the whole letter of James. Here's another one. James is written to show us what the true religion looks like. The whole letter is a description of true religion. But here, especially in verses 26 and 27, he gives us some critical representative Practices that the truly religious will demonstrate in their lives. And so these are what we want to look at this morning. But first, I want to talk about that term religion for just a minute because this gives some people, uh, problems. Maybe you even bristled a little bit when you heard me use that term or read that term in James. What do you think of when you hear the term religion? You know, it's common in our day for, uh, people to say that the Christian faith is a relationship, not a religion. Religion has become a bad word for a lot of people. Uh, in the minds of many modern people, religion is often synonymous with hypocrisy and self-righteousness and judgmentalism and kind of this uh, smug, holier-than-thou attitude. It's synonymous with intolerance and legalism. You know, religion, that's what the Pharisees practiced. The Pharisees were religion, were, were religious, and Jesus came along to abolish religion and bring in something better. And so religion will be contrasted with a relationship, or it'll be contrasted with grace. And you'll hear people say, oh, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. I mean, that's how a lot of Christians today talk, right? Well, uh, religion is a problematic term for us today. You're not supposed to talk about religion in politics, for example, in polite company. Religion especially gets a bad rap. What should we say to that? What should we think about that? What would James say about that? Uh, I think James would tell us we should not shy away from that term religion. We should not shy away from saying that the Christian faith is a religion. Maybe the term needs rehabilitating in our own minds. Maybe it needs rehabilitating in The culture, but it's certainly biblical. James here speaks of religion in a positive way. He speaks of our faith as a religion. And of course, throughout the history of the church up until very, very recently, everybody spoke of the Christian faith as a religion. If you go back and you look at, uh, for example, in the era of the Reformation, uh, which was clearly a break with certain aspects of the Roman Catholic religion, still the Reformers were very happy to describe the Christian faith that they were seeking to recover as a religion. One of the very earliest confessions, the Augsburg Confession of 1530, lists as one of its main purposes, that the one pure and true, sounds a lot like James, doesn't it? The one pure and true religion may be embraced and maintained by us. John Calvin's most famous work was called The Institutes of the Christian Religion. He wasn't afraid to use that kind of terminology. A religion includes beliefs, practices, rituals, a community. It's a perfectly good term. We are a religious people. If you are a church-going person, you are religious. If you consider yourself a believer, you are a religious person. So, I'm religious, you're religious. There, I said it. Okay, it wasn't so bad. You know, lightning didn't strike. You know, it's okay to say I'm religious. No, we want to practice the true religion. We want to practice our religion Rightly, there is a lot that goes under the name of religion that is very problematic, but we should not hesitate to say the Christian faith is a religion. It's a religion that includes a relationship with God, but you shouldn't pit those two against each other. You should not contrast religion with relationship. In fact, I sometimes wonder, you know, when people say that uh, the Christian faith is is a relationship not a religion? I wonder, you know, are, are they thinking about the fact that if that were the case, the First Amendment would no longer apply to them? I mean, does anybody think about that? You know, the First Amendment uh, assures us a freedom of religion, the free exercise of religion. If you say this is not a religion, are you saying that we don't want any political freedoms? But there's another issue here. The problem is that if you dismiss that term or that category of religion, then it becomes all too easy to truncate and distort what the Christian faith actually is. It becomes all too easy to reduce the Christian faith to something that is completely inward and private. And so a non-religious spirituality easily degenerates into a form of Gnosticism. The ancient Gnostics believed that their religion was just a matter of ideas and experiences. There wasn't any such thing as public truth. And if we deny that the Christian faith is a religion, we might be turning the Christian faith into a kind of Gnosticism. Where it's just about the ideas in our heads or the the private experiences we have. And that whole sense of public truth, that the gospel is public truth, is lost the public dimension of the Christian faith can be lost. The social, communal, and ritual aspects of the Christian faith can be lost. And I'd say, that's why we need this term. We need this term religion because it points out to us and reminds us of the inadequacy of how so many people look at the faith. So here's a a plea for doing what James does. Keeping that term religion or religious around. Let's use it Let's use it the way James uses it. To stand for a total way of life in conformity with God's Word. Religion describes the totality of our relationship with God in all its public and private dimensions, all its individual and communal dimensions, all of its inward and outward aspects. That's really what the term religion means. It's inward and outward, public and private, individual and communal. Religion is simply a way of, uh, of describing our orientation to God. That's what religion is. It's your, it's your orientation to God. It's how you engage with God. It's the whole of the faith inside and out. Well, how does James then describe religion? Well, he gives us three ways to identify the true religion that God accepts. Now, this is not intended to be an exhaustive list, as if you just could check off these three things, then that would be it. This is a representative list of things that James found especially significant in his context, but I think they are in our context as well. Practitioners of the true religion will practice these things that James describes here. Again, not an exhaustive list, but it's certainly representative. The examples James gives here are important. So he says, adherents of the true religion will bridle their tongues. They will be socially responsible. That is, they will do mercy ministry for widows and orphans. And they will avoid worldliness. They will avoid being stained or spotted with worldliness. Let's look at each of those three dimensions of the true religion James gives to us here. Verse 26, he says, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. So James here is contrasting the true religion with worthless religion and the sign of which side of that line, true religion versus worthless religion, the the sign of which side of that line you fall on is what you do with your tongue. Do you bridle your tongue? Those who are careless with their speech have a vain and worthless religion. Those who lie as a matter of course, those who habitually slander, those who gossip, uh, those who engage in coarse jesting or arrogant boasting, their religion is worthless. In fact, it's interesting, that word for worthless or 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 vanity it's the same word used for idols it's it's used for idolatry in places like acts 14:15 where paul is preaching and he tells these pagans to turn away from vain things turn away from worthless things and to the living god these worthless things he wants them to turn away from are their idols vain religion is idolatry And so James is saying here that if you profess faith in Jesus Christ but don't bridle your tongue, you're actually an idolater. Your faith is worthless. If you're baptized but don't bridle your tongue, your baptism is void. You're an idolater. If you work in soup kitchens to help the poor, but you slander, curse, and gossip others against others, your service is worthless. It's all in vain. That's what James is saying. Now James is going to have more to say about the tongue, especially about teachers' tongues in chapter 3. But here he wants us to already see our tongues are a test. What you do with your tongue is a test. The test of our religion is found in what we say and how we say it. Do we use our tongues to bless and to promote righteousness Or do we do the opposite? Do we use our tongues to curse and to promote division and hatred and discord? Is your tongue bridled? or Is it under control? Or is your tongue out of control? Unbridled? That's the question. Your words are an expression of who you are. The tongue reveals the heart. Just as God's Word, His Logos, reveals Him, so your words reveal you. So the tongue is to be bridled if we want our religion to be worth something, if we want it to be acceptable to God. We must practice tongue control, self-control with our speech. Religion that does not subdue the tongue is false religion. Now, when James describes the second and third dimensions of true religion... He says these are what characterize pure and undefiled religion. Those terms pure and undefiled are really interesting in this context. The the terms pure and undefiled in the Old Testament are found generally in a liturgical context. They have to do with things that would happen at the tabernacle or the temple. So if you were ceremonially washed under the law, then you were pure or you were clean. Priests and sacrifices that were acceptable to God that could enter sacred space in the temple, like the holy place or the most holy place, were said to be undefiled. So this kind of purity or cleanness, uh, this kind of being undefiled, these are liturgical concepts. So it's really, really interesting what James is doing here. James is using liturgical terms their liturgical vocabulary to describe the way we are supposed to live. As if to say the sacrifices that are truly acceptable to God are found not just in the sanctuary, the place of worship, but out there in ordinary life. It's not just that we come together in here to offer up a sacrifice of praise, but what we do when we leave this gathering... We're to be living sacrifices. We're to go on worshiping God by how we live in everyday life. Offering up our lives as a sacrifice to Him by doing these kinds of things. James wants us to be living sacrifices. That's Paul's language. That's how Paul puts it in Romans 12. But you've got the same concept here. We are worshiping God when we are living this way. So it's as if, James says, look, if you want your liturgical offerings to be accepted, by God, if you want your prayers and your songs to be accepted, if you want your praise and your worship to be accepted by God, you've got to live this way. You've got to make your whole life a pure and undefiled offering to God. You've got to go live as priests out there in the world offering up this kind of sacrifice. So what does he say? What are we to do? Well, he says we are to visit widows and orphans. There certainly seemed to be a lot of widows in the early church, widows who needed care. We see it in Acts 6, for example. This would be just before the persecution of Stephen and the scattering uh, of the church after his death. But it's interesting to find in Acts chapter 6, what I think are the first deacons in the church, are chosen specifically to care for widows. In fact, at this point, the church is predominantly Jewish, Uh, But it's very interesting because Acts 6 says the Greek widows, the Hellenistic widows, were being neglected. And so maybe even there was a kind of ethnic issue there where Hebrew widows, the Jewish widows, were getting more care, more attention than the Greek widows. And so something had to be done to fix the situation. And so seven deacons were chosen, interestingly, all with Greek names. They were chosen to minister to these widows so the apostles could be free to continue preaching the word. And so in a sense, you could say an office was established in the church to care for widows. That was the original purpose of the office of deacon, to care for the marginalized, to care for the vulnerable, to care for the weak, for the needy. But James doesn't just give this task to the deacons. He gives it to the whole church. James says we are to visit widows and orphans in their distress. Now, when I think, oh, visit, that means I, go, I need to go to the nursing home or to the orphanage. But don't think of that term visit as just referring to house calls. It can include that, but it's, it's a much more powerful term. The term visit is loaded in Scripture. When God visits his people, he acts powerfully to deliver them. And so, for example, in Luke 168, uh, in, in the song there it says, "God has visited and redeemed His people." Or Luke 178 says, "The day spring from on high has visited us." So when God visits, he acts, He shows up to do something to rescue his people. In the background of all this is the Exodus. The Exodus is called a visitation from God. Exodus chapter four, verse 31. "The Lord visited the people of Israel. Because he heard their cries, he visited them that he might deliver them from their affliction. So to visit means you've heard their cries, you know they're in distress, and now you come running to the rescue. You come, you drop by not just to say hi, but to actually do something about their situation. To visit widows and orphans is to defend and care for them, it's to relieve their distress, it's to lift them out of misery. It's to enfold them into the family of the church, to give them a community where they can belong. The church provides for the missing husband or provides in in place of that missing father. It's interesting how all throughout Scripture, widows and orphans are linked. They're kind of grouped together. Widows and orphans just kind of form a single category. Again and again we see this in Scripture. It's very clear God is concerned with widows and orphans. He's concerned with them in their distress. So Psalm 68.5 says, God is the father of the fatherless and the protector of widows. God himself takes on this role. Psalm 146.9, the Lord upholds the widow and fatherless. Uh, Zechariah 7.10 commands the people of Israel, do not oppress the widow or the fatherless. Isaiah 117, a similar command to the Israelites, seek justice, correct oppression, Bring righteousness to the fatherless and plead the widow's cause. Going back into the Torah, the law of Moses, Exodus 22 commands us, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. They're easy to take advantage of. Don't mistreat them, the law says. Deuteronomy 14 reminds Israel to welcome widows and orphans into their feasts and festivals. Don't, when you have a great liturgical celebration, a great feast, a great festival, don't forget to include the widows and the orphans. Boaz, of course, showed his true worth by caring for the widow, Ruth. Uh, Boaz showed what a great man he was by taking care of a widow named Ruth. Ultimately, he married her. Uh, And I think it's 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 a beautiful picture of the gospel. This tradition of caring for widows and orphans was carried on by the early church. Uh, You can read about this, for example, in the Apostolic Constitutions, an early Christian document that describes how widows and orphans are to be cared for uh, at the church's expense. It's very clear, you look at the whole picture here, God loves to look out for the weak and the powerless, and he commands us to do the same. God is very concerned with the widow and with the orphan. Now think about this. Why are widows and orphans paired together so often in Scripture? What is it that widows and orphans have in common that links them? Uh, It's important to note that term for orphan is often translated as fatherless. A lot of translations uh, simply have it that way. And it's also interesting to me that in this very context in James 1, uh, James calls God Father twice. Right in the context of calling us to care for the fatherless, James identifies God as the father. As if to indicate God becomes a father to the fatherless through the care of his people. God wants his people to represent his fatherhood to those who do not have a father. To become fathers to the fatherless, as it were. Representing God's fatherhood. That's what God has done for us, right? He's adopted us. He's become our father. He's brought us into his family. And now God wants us to do that kind of thing with others who are fatherless. What widows and orphans have in common is they lack a man to protect and provide for them. What stands out in their case is the absence of a husband and father figure to care for them, to be their protector and provider. Now, the church in James' day in the first century, uh, many of the widows and orphans were probably in that situation because their men had been killed in the persecution. Today, we face a quite different situation. In our culture, we have a lot of Functional widows and fatherless children. But it is largely because of the breakdown of the family in our society. Not some kind of persecution that's killing Christian men. But just more generally in our society, the breakdown of the family. It's not dead men, it's bad men that have created this situation. This situation where there are missing men. Men who ought to be there who are not. Our culture is creating an unprecedented number of unattached, unprotected women and children. Sometimes women are are complicit in this as well. It's not entirely, it's not just the men, but that's what we see. It's, It's the missing men. It's the missing fathers and husbands. That's what the widows and orphans, functional widows and orphans have in common. Why is this? There's a lot of reasons why we've got an unprecedented number of functional widows and Orphans in our society. One is the sexual revolution. Sex outside of marriage creates birth outside of marriage, birth outside of wedlock. So it creates single moms who then sort of have to function as widows. And of course, fatherless kids. It's an epidemic. In a lot of major American cities, more children are born out of wedlock than in wedlock. Divorce can do the same. Now, sometimes divorce is justified and even advisable. But no-fault divorce laws in virtually every single state in our land mean that far too many people opt out of marriage when they should seek to work their problems out. And so again, you see the family breaking up. Kids growing up without a father in the home is perhaps the greatest social crisis of the day. More children in America are growing up without a father than ever before. And many of our social problems are linked to fatherlessness. If you were to see all, if you were to take all these social problems we see and trace them back to their root, you would find fatherlessness is at the root of it. Growing up with a father is the best way for children to avoid poverty. Growing up without a father puts children at a huge disadvantage. They're more likely to struggle in school. They're more likely to have emotional problems. They're more likely to fall into crime, more likely to repeat the cycle of family brokenness. I mean, just to give you one really extreme example of this, most of the mass shootings we've had have been carried out by men who grew up without a father in the home. There may be other things that link those cases, but that's one that you very consistently see. If at all possible, kids need a mom and a dad to nurture and train them. They need a family context, an intact family. You know, we hear about all different kinds of privilege today. We hear about privilege that's based on skin color or based on sex. But I'll tell you what the greatest privilege of all is. It's growing up in an intact family. The greatest privilege of all is growing up with a mom and dad who love you, who are committed to each other, and committed to you. But more and more kids today lack that privilege. So what do we do? What do we do about it? James tells us we've got to do something about it. What does our culture do about it? Our culture tends to look to the states to deal with this problem. Our culture tends to look to the government to compensate for the breakdown of the family. And so the state becomes a kind of surrogate husband and father. Uh, Statism rises as the family falls. There's a relationship there. Families led by strong men who know how to protect and provide and love and serve. Families with strong men like that don't need the welfare state. The welfare state is largely a response to the loss of fathers. Today, the state virtually has to bankroll the broken family. As families get weaker, then the state gets bigger. When people don't have family or community to care for them, what do they do in our culture? In our culture, they tend to look to the state to take care of them, to make up for that missing man. That's what we see today. But does it work? Well, there's a lot of stories and a lot of, uh, stats I could give you and that kind of thing. But let me just tell you, let me just read to you what one scholar says about this because I think it's a helpful summary. Our modern day welfare programs, have the effect of minimizing the importance of the father. The more financial and social support that the state directly provides for women and children, the more marginalized the father becomes in the family unit. And having a father in the home is still the number one way to help children stay out of poverty. Women have a unique and irreplaceable role in the family. Only they can carry and nurse a child. By contrast, father's commitment to mom and baby comes voluntarily and it an involves support that is indirect, provision and protection. A state, a minimal state-funded safety net can help women and children stay out of extreme poverty. But the goal should always be to create the unique male-female partnerships, marriages, that are the natural, divinely ordained and most effective means of nurturing the next generation. We should be looking for policies that facilitate household formation, getting fathers into the lives of their children rather than those that inhibit it by subsidizing fatherlessness. When the welfare state grows in size, it tells men you are expendable in your role as father." The scholar goes on to say the future flourishing of the human race depends on the family, and the health of the family increasingly depends on our ability to get large government bureaucracies to leave families alone. I think there is a lot of wisdom in that. I'm not saying all state welfare programs in every case are wrong, but the way we see the welfare state operating today is not really friendly to the family. And indeed, state welfare not only interferes with the family, it interferes with the church's ministry to broken families. The state often ends up shutting down Christian charities or at least making their job more difficult. We've seen this just in the last several years where Christian orphanages and adoption agencies have been shut down. Why? Well, a lot of times it's because they don't want to put children with same-sex couples because they believe that's a violation of God's design for the family. We see this in all kinds of ways. Government welfare subsidizes various forms of immorality. You see this with laziness. Government welfare in all kinds of ways subsidizes laziness, whereas biblical mercy would say, if you are capable of working and you refuse to work, you should not eat. But our welfare programs don't abide by that principle, so we subsidize all kinds of immorality. And guess what? You get more of what you subsidize and less of what you penalize. In all kinds of ways, we're subsidizing the wrong things. Again, I'm not saying that all welfare programs have done more harm than good. And I'm not saying that, you know, say in a Christian culture with a Christian state, I'm not saying the state would not have any role in caring for the poorest of the poor in some way. I think that's entirely possible. What I am saying is that in our present context, welfare directed towards our functional widows and orphans hurts at least as much as it helps and very often hurts a whole lot more than it helps. So the welfare state cannot give widows and orphans what they need. And perhaps that is why James gives the task of caring for widows and orphans to the church, not to the state. He assigns this task to us, to the people of God. So we can ask, how should we do this? Well, there's all kinds of ways. I would say you start with those who are, closest to you. You know, you think about the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's somebody that he came across who was in need, who is geographically proximate to him, proximate to him, geographically close to him. Or think about what uh, Paul writes to Timothy of a man does not provide for his own, especially those of his own household. He has denied the faith. Okay, so you start with those closest to you geographically. You start with those closest to you relationally. Paul writes to the Galatians. He says, when we have opportunity, let us do good to all men, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Start in the church. Where are the functional widows and orphans? In the church we can help. So you've got geographic and relational nearness. Start there. But the key thing here, I think, is to see that James expects the church to be the chief agent of mercy and charity in the world. This is a task given to Christians as Christians. Again, the truth is the state really can't solve the problems widows and orphans face. Maybe the state's welfare checks can put a band-aid on the problem, but it really can't deal with the root issue. Because the root issue is not just lack of financial capital, it's also lack of social capital, indeed even lack of spiritual capital. And those kinds of lacks can only be made up by the church. The problems of loneliness, family breakdown, alienation, immorality, those problems can't be solved politically. They have no political solution. In fact, again, what we see is the more state programs have mushroomed over the last 50 or 60 years, the worse things have gotten. Again, the more money government spends, the less there is to show for it. And in part, again, it's because government programs sometimes actually make the problem worse by subsidizing and incentivizing immorality. Instead of incentivizing the formation and maintenance of family bonds, they actually subsidize the breakup of the family. The problem here is alienation. It's loneliness. It's a lack of social and spiritual capital. The cure for loneliness, the cure for this kind of alienation is going to be found in community and in the gospel. Ultimately it's going to be found in the community and the ministry of the church. The church has to be the answer. Now there's a whole lot more that could be said about that that ought to be said about that. And perhaps I'll say more about it sometime soon. But that's the bottom line. When it comes to functional widows and orphans, when it comes to this crisis of the breakdown of the family, the church has to be the answer. Well, Finally, one last thing here, last but not least, what does James mention? Not just dealing with widows and orphans, he also tells us if we're going to practice pure and undefiled religion that the Father accepts. That means we have to keep ourselves unstained from the world. Now, what does that mean when James says we have to keep ourselves unstained from the world? Well, given that James has just mentioned caring for widows and orphans, and given that in chapter two, he's about to mention oppression of the poor, some have said that staying unspotted from the world means avoiding various forms of economic exploitation of the weak. It means you don't take advantage of the widow, and the orphan. You don't participate in economic injustice as the world so often does. And certainly I think that's true. That's one way we could be spotted or stained with worldliness, participating in that kind of economic injustice. But I, I think the term here uh, that James gives us uh, is broader than that when he says keeping oneself unspotted from the world. I think it's got to mean more than just that. In fact, I think this connects with verse 21. If you go back to verse 21, he says we must put off filthiness and rampant wickedness. That filthiness that stains us. So what James talks about in verse 21, that filthiness and, and wickedness, that's what stains us or spots us in verse 27. It's interesting here. I think the background to this kind of imagery is probably the story of Joshua the high priest in Zechariah 3, where the prophet has a vision of the high priest and he has these filthy garments on. His garments are filthy, they're stained, they're spotted, and you can't have a priest ministering in God's sanctuary with spotted garments. And so those garments are put off, similar to the language that James uses for putting off that filthiness, and then he is clothed with pure and undefiled vestments. And that's what James is saying must happen to us. Put off your stained and filthy garments, your worldly garments, and put on clean, pure, spotless garments. The garments that are fitting for God's priests. So then it seems that remaining unspotted with the world, with worldliness, means guarding ourselves against anything that might defile or stain us. It means rejecting worldliness, we could say. That's how he describes it, uh, keeping oneself unspotted from the world. Well, what is worldliness? Worldliness makes sin normal. Worldliness is when sin, it's invisible to you as sin because it's just the way things are. It's inevitable. It's just a way of life. It's normal. When rebellion against God is normalized so it's no big deal, that's worldliness. James in chapter 3 will describe it as friendship with the world. Embracing practices and postures that are contrary to God's will is friendship with the world. Or think about 1 John chapter 2 where the apostle says, Love not the world or the things of the world. See, instead of blending in with the world, our religion should distinguish us from the world. Not in a self-righteous way that people so often think of religion. But we, we, our religion distinguishes us from the world. We stand out from the world because of our holiness, because of our humility, because of our faithfulness, because of our love, because of our service and our sacrifice. Standing out from the world. It means we guard our eyes and ears from worldly entertainments that would corrupt us. I'm not going to be legalistic and tell you what movies you can see or not see, but I do know you need to guard your eyes and your ears in our culture or you will be corrupted. You'll be spotted by the world. Unlike much of the world, we are to remain chaste before marriage and faithful inside of marriage. Unlike much of the world, we're to be generous rather than greedy, not just living for ourselves but serving others. Unlike much of the world, we're to be forgiving rather than spiteful. We're to be honest rather than deceitful. We're to build others up rather than tear them down. In short, what James is doing for us again, as we've seen him do repeatedly in the first chapter, he's giving us two paths. We're at a fork in the road continually. Which path are you going to take? There is the way of the world, the way of demonic wisdom that comes from below, the way of being spotted with the world, living for yourself, and that is contrasted with the way of God, with the way of righteousness, with the way of heavenly wisdom that comes from above, the way of sacrifice and service and love for James this new way of life is the fruit of the new birth that he's already described back in verse 21 the word implanted in us that saves us from the ruin of sin that new birth given to us by God's word that's the foundation for all of this understand you can't go do James 126 and 27 unless you have first experienced James 121 Unless you've got that Word implanted in you, anything you go set out to do is going to fail miserably because you'll be doing it in your own strength, not in the power of God's Word. We are God's born-again people. His born-anew people. We have His Word dwelling in us. God's Word is planted as a seed in us. Let us show that. Let us demonstrate that by how we live, by practicing the true religion that James calls us to. And of course, you know what? You know what else we ought to think of when we read these verses? We ought to think of Jesus. Who is the one who has blazed a trail for us in these ways? Is there someone who always bridled his tongue wisely? Who always cared for the needy? Who always kept himself spotless from the world? Yes, there is. And his name is Jesus. It's His Word planted in you. It's His Word that will grow to bear fruit in you. It's His Word that forgives you. It's His Word that cleanses you. It's His Word that means you're now accepted by the Father, adopted by the Father. He bridled His tongue. He cared for the needy. He kept Himself spotless. He did it all that He might be your model, but also that He might be your hope. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank You again For all the ways you have blessed us and poured out your mercy upon us, we thank you especially for Jesus. Yes, he is our example, but more than that, he is our hope. He is our Savior. May he do this work in us that we would practice the true religion and not be merely hearers of your word, but doers of your word. This we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.